We move now from the objective ground of justification in the God-glorifying death of Jesus and from the objective nature of justification in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us to the subjective means. Those are the three words for these three lectures. The ground, the nature, and the means. The subjective means. Meaning, now we're talking about what's happening inside of me in order to receive the gift of justification. And the historic, reformed, biblical answer has always been that we receive justification by faith in Christ. And just to refresh our memory, let me read several texts from Romans. Chapter 3, verse 26. He died to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28. We hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 30, God will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith and the uncircumcised through their faith. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to one who works, his wages are reckoned as not as a gift, but as his due. And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. So at least on the face of it, you can see from those texts that the means inside of me by which I receive the gift of justification is faith in Jesus. Now my question is, first, why did God ordain that faith be the means by which human beings can receive the gift of justification. Why not some other means? Now, I think that's very important because if we can answer that question, it will assist us greatly in maintaining the proper stance towards God and why he ordained this means and not another means. And I have two answers to that question. Let me sum them up and then we'll spend a brief time on the first one and more extended time on the second one. My first answer to the question, why God ordained faith as the means of receiving justification, is that faith glorifies God. And therefore, faith preserves and continues the design of the cross. It would be a strange thing if God were to have a design and a purpose in the cross and the death of his son, which we saw last night was the exaltation of his glory, and then ordain another means that drew attention to me and not him. 
That's my first answer. The second answer is that faith satisfies the one who trusts. And therefore, faith becomes a psychologically indispensable link between justification and sanctification because in being satisfied with God by faith, the nerve of sin is broken because the only power of sin is in commending itself to me as surpassingly satisfying. Now that's a summary of my two answers. And I want to take them one at a time, one at a time, and say a little more about them. Not too much more about the first one, since I think it would be a repeating of things we've seen already. But let me go ahead and restate number one, and then spend the rest of our time on number two. My first answer to the question of why God ordained faith as the means by which we are justified, rather than some other means like works, is that faith glorifies God and therefore preserves and continues the purpose and design of the cross. Romans chapter 4 verse 20 is I believe the key text for understanding why faith glorifies God. Let me read it for you. Paul says of Abraham, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now that verse clearly teaches that when you are fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, and when you put your trust in that God, he gets glory. And that is so obvious why that's the case. You are honored when somebody trusts you. Trust speaks volumes about your character. Luther, in the freedom of the Christian, put it like this. It is a further function of faith that it honors him whom it trusts with a most reverent and highest regard, since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. So when the soul firmly trusts God's promises, it regards him as truthful and righteous. So the way to honor God and glorify God and thus preserve and continue the design of the cross is to put your trust in him. For when you trust in him, when you bank on his promises, you magnify his trustworthiness, his wisdom, his strength, his willingness to help you. You speak volumes by your faith about the character of God. Answer number two. God has ordained, I believe, that faith be the means of justification because in faith, we are satisfied with God. Faith, I believe, by definition, I'll try to spell this out further as we go along. If it sounds like a, a new definition to you, my operating definition of saving faith is this. Faith is a being satisfied 
with all that God is for us in Jesus. Faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Now, why is that important? Let me sum it up and then we'll spell it out. I, I mentioned the connection between justification and sanctification. Faith is the means of being justified. Faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. And therefore, this faith which justifies, or is the path of justification, is the axe which severs the nerve power of sin. Because the only power that sin has in your life is if it can persuade you that its way is more satisfying than God. If, if sin cannot persuade you that it is more satisfying than God, you won't do it. Nobody sins out of duty. Sin only happens in your life because you think it will make you happier. If faith is a resting in and a being satisfied with God, the nerve is cut of sin. Therefore, justifying faith sanctifies. That's the essence of the rest of the message. Romans 8, verse 30 says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I'm setting up a problem here. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Which means, as I said this morning, the glorification is certified, secured in the justification. If you stand justified before the Lord today, you may be certain that you will be glorified. And therefore, faith uniting you to Christ for justification means you will be glorified. The faith connects you. So it's certain there is assurance of ultimate salvation. On the other hand, and this creates a problem for many, our final glorification is clearly contingent upon our becoming holy people. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness of life to be pursued. This is not forensic holiness. There probably is such a thing. That's not what this verse is about because he says pursue it. Pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You will not be glorified if you are not holy. I do not say perfect. Don't let any notion enter your mind that this is perfectionism coming out of my mouth right now. I am calling for a transformed life that hates sin and loves holiness and pursues obedience to God in spite of our many failings.
Without that, no one will be saved in the end. 1 John 2.17 The world passes away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever, and nobody else abides forever. Galatians 5.19-21 I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. If you walk in the works of the flesh, you will not be glorified. Paul makes it very clear that the indispensable pathway to glorification is the pathway of sanctification. For example, Romans 6.22, Paul says, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. Eternal life is the end of sanctification. If you try to go around sanctification, you don't end up in eternal life. Sanctification is the necessary pathway to eternal life and glory. He says it another way in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God has chosen you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, here's the problem. Maybe you're already feeling it. The problem is, on the one hand, Romans 8.30, those who are justified will be glorified, makes it sound so certain and so sure that any contingency would seem out of place. Whereas all these other texts that I just referred to, there is a holiness without which you will not see the Lord, makes it sound contingent. Now what's the solution to that tension? How can both of these be true? What's the link that makes the sanctification of the elect as sure as their justification? Do you see why that has to be? If the justified are glorified, and if sanctification is necessary for glorification, sanctification must be as sure as justification. They must go together. They must. Otherwise, these texts fall to the ground. My question is, what holds them together? What makes the necessary, indispensable, inevitable union of justification and sanctification. Now one answer that a reformed person would give is the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who is justified receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is holy and he will work and see to it that every person in whom he dwells becomes holy. Now that's a true answer. But it's not, I think, sufficient in our day because it's not the whole picture in the Bible. And you need to know what to do when you read hundreds and hundreds of commandments in the New Testament 
directed to you to do things. Don't return evil for evil. Forgive. Be kind. Love one another. Be holy as I am holy. Those are directed to you, not to the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to do that. You are called upon to obey. The Sermon on the Mount is not fun and games. It's directed to you to do something with. And if the only answer that we've heard is, I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I guess if I hear the commands, He'll do something. And He didn't do anything, and now what do I do? Do I hit or embrace? Do I lie or do I tell the truth? Is it me doing it? How, what am I supposed to do? If you can't answer that question, you're not being very helpful to people. And so I want to answer the question beyond saying that the Holy Spirit is the necessary link between justification and sanctification. It's a truth, but more can be said. I want to say that the nature of saving faith is the link. The very nature of saving, justifying faith is such that it must sanctify. Now this I do not hear taught nearly enough. In fact, I fear that Calvin didn't know this. Now I have not read all of Calvin and therefore I just state it as a fear. I have heard other people say, whom I trust, that he did not understand this. He never drew out the clear connection between justifying faith as the means of sanctification, as the inevitable effecting agent of sanctification psychologically. And that's what I want to try to draw out now. Luther, I believe, saw it. Let me read you a quote from a sermon which was written after the freedom of the Christian. And here's what he said. Faith is God's gift and grace obtained by one man, Christ. Therefore, faith is something very powerful, active, restless, effective, which, one, which at once renews a person and again regenerates him and leads him altogether into a new manner and character of life so that it is impossible not to do good without ceasing. That's an amazing statement. And I believe it is true. Faith is of such a kind that it is impossible to have it and not do good. Now the reason this is not preached today is because we have lock, stock, and barrel, barrel bought into a decisional religion that defines faith as something you can do by signing a card or praying a prayer or saying you agree with the doctrine that Christ died for you so that you can get results like that. My definition of faith makes it very hard to know when I've got it from people. And I try to lead people to, my, to Christ in my office. I told you about this man I met with and prayed with. I do not know right now on this Saturday if he's born again, though he prayed the right prayer. I don't know. 
He will confirm his calling and election and make it sure by whether or not this faith which he expressed with his lips was here and bearing fruit now. So I think Luther is right. Paul makes it clear that all obedience that is glorifying to God and is pleasing to God is the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that comes from faith. Now I, I don't mean just that there's a kind of loose connection in the same soul that a soul has faith and a soul does obedience and they always happen to coincide in the same soul and the Holy Spirit is doing something here to make it happen. I don't mean that. I mean there's something about the nature and the dynamic of this faith which produces this obedience. Let me um, share with you some texts from Paul that lead me in this direction. For example, Romans 9, verses 31 to 32. I think it's one of the most important texts for understanding the nature of the law. I'm not a good covenant theologian at this point. I don't think there's a necessary connection between covenant theology and being biblical and even reformed with regard to the five points, all of which I believe. But listen to this. Romans 9.32 Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though, mark those words, it wasn't, but as though it were by works. Why did Israel not attain unto the righteousness of the law? Because they interpreted the law to teach works, which it never did. The law was to be pursued by faith. And the reason they fell short of the fulfillment of the law is that they twisted the law into a ladder to heaven and tried to climb it by their own efforts, which it was never intended to be. I don't think there is such a thing as a covenant of works, in other words. Ever. I don't think God ever commended to the human race that we should earn anything. That's Galatianism. God does not teach heresy. God would never commend to you that you do something which is idolatrous and blasphemous. Legalism is blasphemous. God never taught legalism. Right at the center of the Sinaitic covenant is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The heart of the law is the gospel. Now that's another lecture in another year, but I feel constrained to put it in because I know I'm speaking to very self-consciously reformed people and it is not the case that 
being reformed and being an historic covenant theologian are identical. I consider myself reformed. I don't consider myself a covenant theologian. The obedience demanded by the law was the obedience of faith. The whole Bible has one message to deliver. Trust God and live like it. From the Garden of Eden on. Consider Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not come from faith is sin. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? Because without faith all efforts at obedience are self-exalting. Not God-exalting. God is exalted when we rely upon Him to satisfy our souls and thus free us from all the temptations to greed and unkindness and lust and all the other sins. One of my favorite verses, it's the verse that probably comes as close to any in my life to defining my philosophy of ministry at my church is 1 Peter 4.11 and it says, let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. Now, the logic there is, the giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. But I serve in that strength that he gets the glory. My service is not self-generated or self-reliant somehow or other faith is laying hold upon God in such a way that the service that is flowing from it gets the glory for God and not for me and I'm arguing that at the heart of that faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus and that that cuts the nerve a few more texts. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 calls for an obedience like this. Your work of faith and your labor of love. Work of faith. What is that? What is a work of faith? I don't think Calvin knew what it was. Uh, then, it, From what I read, it seems like obedience just seemed to flow from the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruits of the Holy Spirit. But what was the connection with faith? How did faith produce that work? Why is it that the faith that justifies produces works that you can call the works of faith? 2 Thessalonians 1.11 We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by His power. Work of faith by His power. His power is producing the work, but the psychological conscious dynamic that causes it to happen in my decision-making process is faith. The Holy Spirit's work is the deep, unconscious, subjective producing of a satisfaction in God. 
The essential work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification is to make me happy in God, to make me rest in God, to make me delight in God and all His ways and all His works. And when that happens, psychologically and consciously, I become satisfied with God and the power of sin to allure me away is broken. And I inevitably then walk a life that is new. So I feel real strongly warranted by the scriptures to say that uh, obedience or holiness is essential for glorification and glorification is not in question for the justified. Yes, it is contingent upon sanctification. But no, it is not uncertain because the faith that justifies is the faith that sanctifies. And this is a radical teaching because it means that many professing believers are probably not believers in our churches. Why is this faith so powerful? Why can Luther say it is impossible not to do good by this faith? Why does it produce obedience? Let me work on my definition and unpack that for you. My definition is the essence of justifying faith, which also sanctifies, is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Let me take two parts of that definition and think about them with you for a moment. The first part is the God-centeredness of the definition. Notice, I do not say it is a being satisfied with the promises of God. That's true and is an indispensable part. But as I've honed this definition down, I've not wanted to deflect one millimeter from God even onto his promises. It is not a being satisfied, for example, with the gifts of God. Not even forgiveness. It is not a being satisfied with the real estate of heaven, but that God will be there. Sometimes I test my people. And I ask them questions like this. I say, if you could have heaven for eternity with all the pleasures of this life that you've ever imagined that this world can offer unbroken, would you be satisfied if God weren't there? And I linger. I wait. Because I think the hearts of many are saying, sure, sure. If I could have all the sex I wanted, if I could have all the, the fun and games that I wanted and all the vacations I've ever dreamed about and be as pretty as I want to be and as strong and have all the friends there that I've missed on this earth, then why wouldn't I be infinitely happy? And they reveal their godlessness. They're godless. There are a lot of godless people in the church who are there because the accoutrement, the surrounding things of God 
make them happy. People make them happy. Singing makes them happy. Articulate preaching makes them happy. Sentences completed in the pulpit make grammarians happy. <laughs> and they don't know God. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. I have, I have unbelievers who go to my church. Hindus. They come to hear me preach. They like it. I can't believe it. They like passion. They like logic. They don't know God. It's a, it's a just, it makes me weep that I can preach and have so little power. So the first part of the definition is a being satisfied with God. Yes, it's a glorious thing to be forgiven. Yes, it's a glorious thing to rise from the dead. Yes, it's a glorious thing periodically to experience the supernatural in healing. Yes, it's a glorious thing in the fellowship of the saints. We are not to despise any of those. But saving faith is not a being satisfied with any of those. It is a being satisfied with God. The second thing I want to stress in that definition is the word satisfaction. I use the word satisfaction after long reflection on the Bible and on our cultural setting. I am distinguishing it from belief about facts about God. They just hate God. They know him. And they know the way of salvation. And they hate it. I'm also distinguishing it from intellectual ascents of various kinds. Various kinds of decisions. Satisfaction is a quenching of the soul's thirst at the fountain of God. Now if you want a text that draws near to that. I would say John 6.35 is probably among the most explicit. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. Now I deduce from that text that that coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus in John's language are one, and that the coming is a coming to eat and be satisfied that the hunger and the thirst of our souls rest in repose with him, so that we need not run here and there to the broken cisterns of the world anymore. We have found the soul's end. Justifying faith is the discovery that God is the all-satisfying treasure of the universe. And it rests. I have found him. I need no more. That's justifying faith. Now the secret of that faith to sanctify is that it breaks the power of sin in your life. Trusting God to meet your needs because of who He is 
breaks the power of sin's promise. Let me say again what I said a minute ago. The only power that sin has in your life is the power to persuade you that it will make you happier. That's the only reason people sin. Nobody sins out of duty. Nobody gets up and with willpower makes a list of sins and against their deeper desires does them because of some other reason. Nobody. The only reason people sin is because it feels good. That's all. It looks like it will make you happier. More power, more prestige, more immediate pleasure, more comfort, more applause. Now, if you are to overcome the power of that sin, as great old Chalmers said, it will be by the expulsive power of a new affection. It's the only way. The, if you say no, there must be another way, you will try it and it will be legalism. It will be the legal strivings of the flesh to put sin down in your life and you'll get the glory if you succeed, not God. So success or no success, you lose. The only thing that works is a new affection, a being satisfied with a new object, namely God. And thus the fleeting pleasures of sin look ridiculous. In God's presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the text right at the heart of my theology. Psalm 16:11. There are two things I want in the universe. I want to be happy to the fullest, not 95%, but 100. And I want it never to end. Not 800 years, not 8,000 years, but forever. And that's what that verse offers me. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I say, if that's true, my search is over. My search is over. I do not need to go to the newspaper. I don't need to go to the movie house. I don't need to go to the television. I don't need to go to my family. I don't need to go to my church. I don't need to go to friends. I don't need to go to exercise. I don't need to go to food. I have found the soul's end. And the power of finding the soul's end in God is very, very great. Now I want to illustrate it as we draw things to a close from the book of Hebrews. And I invite you to go there with me. I think the book of Hebrews on faith is unbelievably powerful at this point. Many people avoid the book of Hebrews because it has its complex esoteric dimensions. Melchizedek and the priesthood, but oh my, the power of chapters 10, 11, and 12 in helping us understand the sanctifying nature of justifying faith is so great. And that's what I want to try to show you now. First, we'll use the illustration of Moses in chapter 11, Verses 24 to 26, and then we will use the illustration of the early church. 
Let me read with you these verses. Well, Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Now, have your ears perked up with this question. How is Moses sanctified in these verses? By faith, that's the key phrase. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God. That's a very holy and beautiful act, quite against human nature. Then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. How did he do that? He considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater wealth, more satisfying, than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And I would argue that the reward is God throughout this book. So here's the situation. You have a man confronted with a lifestyle of comfort and exaltation and prestige and ease and fun in Pharaoh's house. The alternative is a ragtag, rebellious group of people going through the wilderness. Who knows what would happen if he went with those people and did the leading that God was calling him to do. And he looks at these two choices. This is the holy one, and this is the sinful one. How did he choose? By what power was he released? The first phrase is by faith, and then it is defined for us. He considered suffering with these people greater wealth. This was the satisfying way. Ultimately, in a thousand years, this will be the wealth, and that will only last, what are they called? Fleeting. Fleeting pleasures. You see that? Enjoy the fleeting pleasures. It's pleasure versus pleasure in everybody's heart, no exceptions in the universe. You live by what you discern will bring you the greatest amount of happiness. If you strive against that, you can only become a legalist. If that is not enough here, get the book Desiring God where I try to unpack that. Everybody does and pursues what will bring the greatest wealth into their life. And that's not wrong. You were made that way. And you were made to find it in God. He gets the glory when you find Him satisfied. That's the first illustration from Hebrews. The second illustration is in chapter 10. This one is even more remarkable, more up to date. Let me give you a little background here. It's verses 32 to 36. The situation is this. In the early church to which this was being written, in the early days of the church there had been persecution. And in the persecution, some people had been arrested and put in prison. The other church, the rest of the church, had to make a choice. Do we go underground, hide and thus preserve our lives and enable the gospel to continue. I mean, you can imagine the kinds of arguments that could be used. Or do we go public and visit the prison? Because probably in those days, if you didn't get food from your relatives, you died in prison. 
and thus be associated with the prisoners and perhaps have our lives and our possessions jeopardized. That was the choice. That was the, Moses had the Pharaoh versus the people choice. They have go underground or be identified with the Christians and risk your life. And let's read what happened. Starting at verse 32. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being explicitly exposed to abuse and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. How's that? For you had compassion on the prisoner. Oh, okay, they made, they made the holy choice. How did they do that? You had compassion on the prisoners for you joyfully, accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, or you could put in the word, your satisfaction which has great reward. What was the power that sanctified these people? It was their confidence that they had a better possession and an abiding one. The reason you and I and many Americans live like the rest of the world is because the world is our satisfaction. And very few people there are in the church who have found God. To be so satisfying that they can say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. I'm going to the mission field. I'm going to live in the inner city. I'm going to sell my possessions. I'm going to start a ministry. I'm not going to move to that ritzy place. I'm not going to mount up my investments. I'm going to strip down to a wartime lifestyle and live my few years left so that everything counts for the love of people and the glory of God. Where are there people like that? There are not many, and the reason there are not many is because God is not preached as all satisfying. Duty is preached. And who gives a hoot about duty? I don't. Let me give you an illustration of why I don't give a hoot about duty. I'll be married to Noel 24 years in December. Suppose I arrive on the front porch in, in December. Some of you have heard this illustration before. And I ring the doorbell. Ding dong. And I have these roses behind my back and she comes to the door. This doesn't usually happen. And so she's surprised. And I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, they're beautiful, Johnny. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. <laughs> Every time I tell that story, the same thing happens. You laugh. I say, and then I get real serious. What's wrong with duty? Why are you laughing at duty? This is a serious thing. Why are you laughing at such a glorious thing as duty? You can write an essay about the glories of duty. Duty is a good thing. Duty to country. Duty to God. Duty to the church. Duty to your friends. Duty to your spouse. Why are you laughing? I'll tell you why you're laughing, and you ought to be. It's all right. 
you're laughing because you know that at that moment what would have glorified my wife was not duty but delight. What would have honored her would be the statement, let's run it by again, ding dong. <laughs> oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? I couldn't help myself. I just love to buy roses for you. It makes me so happy. She would not say, makes you so happy. <laughs> All you ever do is talk about what you have. <laughs> now, why wouldn't, she, why wouldn't she accuse me of being a hedonist at that point? Why wouldn't she impart to me an immorality in my saying, I bought these for you because it makes me happy? Why is that not immoral? Why is that not selfish? Answer, my pursuing my joy in her glorifies her. And that's why it won't work in the church to preach duty. You must preach the beauties and glories of God. You must lure your people to God. The only power to break sin is a superior beauty. The only thing that will release your people from walking toward the bank and toward the stores where they accumulate more and more junk trying to make themselves happy is to say God is all. Christ is all. Look at Christ. Look at God. He is all satisfying. That's the only way. You, you can produce rigorous, religious little groups of people trying to do their duty. But you don't produce the church of the living God selling everything and serving the world, laying down their lives, losing their lives, unless you create people like this who say they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They're crazy. When was the last time you rejoiced over a house fire? That's not exactly the right question to ask. Unless your house was torched for your faith. When your house is torched because you're going to visit some AIDS patients and some queer bashers in your community hate you for it and they torch your house, then you sing. Can you sing? Galatians 5, 6 puts it like this. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's Paul's little phrase for what I'm trying to say. When faith is satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, it works through love. It is freed. What are the two things that hinder love? Fear and greed. Greed is overcome when we're satisfied with God and fear is overcome when we're satisfied with God. And when they're overcome, you're free. You're loved. You're drawn out. The way of God is most satisfied. Here's the way Paul puts it again in Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5. We have heard of the love 
that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I've got to stick in a little, I don't know if Bob's here still, but he said, and uh, uh, um, um, that medieval theologian he got down on today. Um, uh, no. The most famous Catholic theologian that ever existed. Aquinas, I think. <laughs> Maybe Augustine is more famous. But he, he, said, he said the problem with medieval Catholic theology was the word ergo. I'm an ergo person. Because it's all over the place in the Bible. The word ergo is everywhere in the Bible. And if you don't grasp the beautiful logical connections that the Holy Spirit willed, then you will make hash of your theology. Uh, Luther really was not opposed to, to ergo. He's always overstating himself. <laughs> but now here is a great reverse ergo, namely because. Because is the logic reverse of ergo, or therefore. Now don't miss this. If you don't get this because, you don't get how sanctification flows from faith. We have heard of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. How did they love? They loved because they had hope in heaven. Having a treasure in heaven that satisfies your heart and secures your future frees you for love. If your future is uncertain, if your heart has a big void in it where God is meant to be and you're unsatisfied and you get up in the morning and go to bed at night an unsatisfied person not resting in God and His acceptance and His love and His beauty and His glory, you will not be a loving person. You can't. You don't have any resources. What have you got to give anybody? You're starving. You're all wrapped up in yourself. The only way to love, according to that verse, is because we've got hope that satisfies the soul. Well, let me try to draw this to a close. The upshot of all of it is that we are justified by joy in God. If you wondered what in the world does that title of this message mean, justified by joy in God, all it means is that we're justified by faith. Faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. And I just plead with you, if what I'm saying right now sounds like a foreign language, if your experience is to say, good night, I have never related to God that way, you really need to do business with the Lord this afternoon. You really need to get serious with God because He is glorious. He is all satisfying. He will come to you in any condition whatsoever as you accept Him and receive Him and reveal Himself to you increasingly over your life so that the capacities of satisfaction grow and grow and sins begin to fall off your life not by any effort or work but because you have fallen in love with a superior reward. And so I commend him to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I want so much to live up to these words. They are for me 
so much easier to say than to live. I am assaulted by the lies of the evil one day in and day out. My flesh rises against this truth. And the world, television, radio, newspaper, all manner of magazines, commend themselves as more to be desired than the path of holiness that leads to you. Lord, I pray right now that you would deliver us from evil and that you would enamor us with your beauty and your greatness and your glory and your wisdom and your justice and your goodness and your truthfulness and your grace and your love and your power that you would open to us all that you are that our hearts might increasingly be satisfied with you and weaned away from the enticements of sin which only offer fleeting pleasures and leave us then sucking at the clay of broken cisterns, utterly frustrated. O oh Lord God, open the eyes of your people, I pray, and reveal your glory to us. In Jesus' name, amen.